I invite you to turn this evening in your Bibles to Judges chapter 6. Which, if you're using one of the blue Bibles in the back of the pews, you'll find on page 205. But before I read all of Judges 6 for us this evening, let us call upon our God and ask for his help as we come before him in his word. Father, we do ask that as we come into your presence once again to hear your word, that you would give us grace to listen, that you would guard us from physical weaknesses or earthly distractions. It can be hard on Sunday evening after worshiping in the morning and doing various things in the afternoon. We can feel sleepy. We can feel just distracted. And I pray that you would guard us from those things. We thank you for your word. Pray that you would strengthen us once again by it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord to you this evening from Judges chapter 6. It says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains, and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza, and leave no sustenance in Israel, and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you, and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, 
and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abiazrites. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down and the Asherah beside it was cut down. And the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore on that day Gideon was called Jerobaal, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, 
Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. And it was dry on the fleece only, and all the ground, and on all the ground there was dew. This is the word of the Lord. One of the challenges of reading through Judges, which I've mentioned before, is that all of the strange and supernatural details can distract you. The characters are so interesting and confusing. The stories of deliverance are so spectacular and unusual. The information provided always seems to tell you just enough that you want to know a little bit more, that when you put all of these things together, you're so focused on all these details that you might have missed the point of the story. Of course, it's not that all of these strange and supernatural details are unimportant. God never gives us irrelevant information. My point, though, is that it's it's easy to read through Judges and even be able to, to tell others a lot of the details of the story, and yet you, you don't really know what the story's about. And so I feel compelled to repeatedly remind myself as I study and remind you as I preach that the main point of Judges, of every single story in Judges, is that God is faithfully and unyieldingly committed to saving his people, even when they remain committed to wandering away in unfaithful idolatry. Judges is about God's unrelenting pursuit of his people. The image that keeps coming to mind as I read through these stories is Jesus' parable of the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the the one sheep that's wandering. Yet if you were going to tell that story in light of Judges, the story would be about a shepherd who leaves the one sheep every other week to go get the 99 who have wandered off. So Judges is not so much about the character of Ehud or of Deborah or of Gideon. It's about the character of God. And do you want to know what Judges reveals about God above all else? Well, you might immediately respond, well, it, it reveals the power of God. And you're right, this, this book does reveal the power of God through all of these stories. But even more, I think, than the power of God, Judges reveals the patience of God. It reveals a father who is so loving, gracious, and patient with his children, even when his kids are the worst. So as we keep working through Judges, I hope that week after week, you keep walking away just wondering, how good is my God? How loving is my God? How faithful is my God? How gracious and how patient is my God? And as we look at chapter 6 this evening, which begins the story of God with Gideon, I want you to see that the greatest miracle that takes place in this story has nothing to do with 
supernaturally consumed sacrifices or dew-saturated fleeces. The greatest miracle of chapter 6 comes in the form of a promise. What should stun and soothe your soul this evening is that God comes to Gideon in these horrible days of the judges and says, the Lord is with you. Again, he says, but I will be with you. For the theme of Judges 6 is the promise of God's presence. Christian, what you need to understand is that God's promise to Gideon in Judges 6 is God's promise to you. It is his promise to all of his people. I will be with you. And that is the promise you need above all others. I don't know what all of you are facing at this moment in your life. But I know that what you need to know to face it is that God is with you. And so I want to help you grow in your understanding and comfort of that promise. For the promise of God's presence is the promise of our salvation. So here's what you need to understand about God's promise in Judges 6. Number one, you need to always understand that this promise of God he will be with you, is a gift of free grace to you. In other words, you don't deserve this promise, but he graciously gives it to you. Story begins like all the other stories. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And that phrase by now should just make you want to pull out your hair. We're not even halfway through the book. And God has already delivered Israel from the Mesopotamians and from the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Amalekites. He's delivered them from the Philistines. Last time we, we heard of his deliverance from the Canaanites who had 900 iron chariots and he does it with a thunderstorm. And so in chapter 5, the, the people of God are finally singing the praise of God. You might be thinking, oh, they finally get it. But here we are in chapter 6, and the cycle begins again. And so this time, God hands Israel over to Midian for seven years. And the Midianites team up with the Amalekites and the people of the east to torment Israel. And I say torment because this is the longest and most detailed description of Israel's oppression in the entire book, the people are absolutely terrified. They're making caves and hiding in dens. They are economically depressed because every year the Midianites come like locusts to take all of their produce and livestock. And so they're also emotionally wiped out and dejected because the author describes the misery of Israel saying, and Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And that encompasses everything. Their lives have hit rock bottom. But they shouldn't be surprised by their circumstances. Because first, their history has told them why this 
is happening. This has happened every time they turned in idolatry while they were in Canaan. Second, God's covenant told them why this is happening. Listen to some of the covenant curses for disobedience listed in Deuteronomy 28, which Moses tells them is going to happen if they disobey before they go into Canaan. It says, and you shall only be oppressed and robbed continually, and there shall be no one to help you. It says, your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you shall not eat any of it. Your donkey shall be seized before your face, but shall not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies, but there shall be none to help you. It says, you shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little, for the locust shall consume it. Now, they didn't have literal locusts this time, but the author goes out of his way to describe the Midianites like locusts. All of those curses should sound familiar from what I read in Judges 6. And third, in, in case it wasn't clear, and let's admit it, there's lots of times we, we should know exactly why things are happening because God, God's word is explained a lot and we still don't get it. This time when they cry out, God actually sends them a prophet to again explain to them exactly why this is happening. So God's word tells them why this is happening. Through the prophet, God reminds Israel of his past salvation and of his past command. And then he tells them exactly what the problem is. The problem is, you have not obeyed my voice. And that's where the prophet ends. So Israel was suffering greatly, but the problem was not God. The problem was them. Now I need to point out something important here. For in Gideon's initial response to the angel of the Lord, and Gideon doesn't at first understand who he's talking to, in Gideon's response, and Gideon I think here is representing the mindset of all the people of Israel, it's clear that Israel was blaming God for their circumstances. And not in the Job kind of way that humbly acknowledges God's sovereign control over all things and right to do as he pleases. Israel was blaming God in the sense of saying, God, this is your fault. They believed God's distance and their suffering was God's fault and that he was wronging them. They thought God was the problem and I think they were angry with God. For when the angel of the Lord tells Gideon that God is with him, Gideon retorts, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us to the hand of Midian. Do you, do you see what they think the problem is? The Lord forsook us, and that's why we're in trouble. Now you'll notice, God doesn't even answer that accusation when Gideon makes it. And I think that is a very gracious thing for God to just skip over that little outburst and repeat to him that the Lord is with him. And so this promise we see is a gift of free grace. 
What I want you to understand is that when you suffer, the appropriate response is never, under any circumstances, to be angry with God and blame Him. God is never the problem. Now, I'm not saying that your suffering is always the direct consequence of your sin. I've preached through Job, I've preached through the Gospel of John, made clear along the way, suffering is is not always the direct consequence of sin in the Christian life. What I am saying, though, is that it is never right in your suffering, regardless of the cause, to harbor anger at God, to let it fester, and accuse Him. There is no such thing as righteous or justified anger at God. And I say this because even within our own denomination, I I believe there has been some very bad advice that has been propagated. There was an article after the shooting at the school in Nashville, where a a PCA pastor wrote an article in Christianity Today that was originally titled, Go Ahead, Get Mad at God for the Nashville Shooting. I, I understand what he's trying to drive at, but let me humbly suggest that it's very bad advice. You will at times feel angry at God. That, that, that's going to happen to us. But what I'm trying to guard you against is from thinking that that's okay and you should be angry at God. You should not harbor it. You should not justify it. You should acknowledge it. You should bring it to God, confess it, and repent of it. God welcomes us to cry out to him in our pain, to ask humble questions in our grief. We see that all over the place in the Psalms. But he does not welcome accusations and anger as if that is justified. The late R.C. Sproul was once asked by a man who had lost one of his children, how do I handle my anger at God? Sproul's answer was, you repent of your anger at God. He said, there has never been anything that has happened to you in your entire life, including this great tragedy and most painful experience that could ever possibly justify being angry at God. There are 10 million reasons why he should be angry at you. God does not owe us a life without pain and tragedy. He has given us a life of grace and a promise of eternal felicity. And any being that does that for us 100% graciously can never righteously be the object of our anger, only of our gratitude. Sproul goes on to recognize behind our anger is always pain. I think any time there is anger, underneath there is the experience of pain. Again, he's not saying don't feel pain. He's saying is, don't let that pain lead you into sin. So Sproul concludes, it is devastatingly dangerous to be angry with God, no matter what. What he's saying is, is not just, don't be angry. How dare you feel bad about suffering and, and tragedy? 
get over it. That, that's not his answer. His answer is a gentle warning not to add sin to your suffering because the consequences of harboring anger at God will be far worse than what you're experiencing now. For we must remember that God does all things well. He cannot possibly do anything that is wrong. But when we get angry at him, there is this implied accusation that he has done something wrong, that he is not loving us, that he is not being just. So can you be angry in your suffering? Yes. Just not at God. There, there can be lots of other things to be angry at. So if you do feel angry at God, acknowledge it, confess it, bring it to him, weep and mourn before your God. But also remember God's word to Israel. For God reminds them, I brought you out of Egypt. I delivered you from oppression. Their response through Gideon was essentially, well, what have you done for me lately? That wasn't enough. Christian, when you blame God in accusatory anger, you are essentially saying to the one who gave his only begotten and beloved son to die on the cross for your sin and raise you with him to eternal resurrection life, well, what have you done for me lately? That wasn't enough. Do not blame and be angry with God. God's presence and his peace are not actually deserved. We don't get to demand them. Yet praise his holy name. We see in Judges 6 that he graciously and freely gives them to us. For even though there shouldn't be anything surprising in those first 10 verses of Judges 6, verse 11 is surprising. God's answer through the prophet ends with, but you have not obeyed my voice. And you may think, well, that's the end of God's answer. They cried out for help. He said, nope, you disobeyed. I'm done. But verse 11, in, in one sense, inserts a much longer, but I'm still going to save you anyway. It, it follows the the same gospel pattern we see throughout Scripture and which is so clearly articulated in Ephesians chapter 2, which says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That all is like the first part of Judges 6. That's where we are. That's our problem. Ephesians go on, goes on to say, though, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God's promise is always a gift of free grace. But number two, we, we learn that God's promise comes with merciful patience for those who remain fearful. 
God's promise comes with merciful patience for the fearful. One of the consequences of Israel's idolatry was the felt absence of God, which inevitably will lead to a life of fear. Israel was living in fear. They made dens and caves and strongholds to hide from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon, he's trying to beat out wheat in a wine press, which is a very inefficient way to do that. To separate wheat from chaff, you, you want to be up in the open air because you throw it up, the wind blows away the chaff, the heavier grain falls down. Wine presses were partially submerged under the earth, and so not very helpful for throwing up. You're not going to get a lot of wind down there. But the author tells us Gideon's trying to do it down there because he's too scared to do it up on the ground because the Midians are going to see him. They're going to come and take all his food. So Gideon, like the rest of Israel, was living in fear. This is further evidenced by his reluctance to go when God says, I'm, I'm sending you to go fight Midian. He needs a lot of signs and assurances. He needs the sign where fire comes and consumes his sacrifice. He needs the sign of the fleece, which he, he asks God to do twice, just in reverse order. And when God tells him to tear down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah, Gideon does this at night, and lest you think, well, Gideon was just so eager to go and obey God that he couldn't even wait till morning to obey, the author clarifies, no, he went at night because he was really scared he was going to get caught. He's afraid of Midianites, he's afraid of his own family and townspeople. Gideon is filled with fear. But I want you to notice, therefore, how patient and merciful God is in dealing with Gideon's fear, which I find really encouraging. For even though God's word should be enough for Gideon, it should be enough for all of us. And even though it is not good to put God to the test, my morning devotions, I was reading Deuteronomy 6 again today clearly says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. But even with all of these things, God patiently assures Gideon at every step. When Gideon asked the angel of the Lord to wait for him, you, you, you got to be kind of gutsy to ask the angel of the Lord, can, can you wait around while I go spend a couple hours preparing food? We're commanded to wait for the Lord, not to make the Lord wait for us. And yet the Lord says, okay, I'll wait for you. Take your time. I'll just sit under this tree. That is merciful patience. And when Gideon sets out his food, fire consumes it. The angel of the Lord vanishes to confirm this is really God speaking. Then when Gideon finally realizes that he's dealing with God Almighty and he deserves to die, the Lord gently tells him, peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. And when Gideon puts God to the test, not once, but twice more, God mercifully takes Gideon's tests every time. And even God's command to tear down Baal's altar is meant to patiently comfort Gideon's and Israel's fears. 
Remember what the Lord told them. He said, you shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. So when God has Gideon tear down the Baal and cut down the Asherah, and then Baal can't actually do anything to Gideon because there isn't really a Baal. This was a way to show, see, you don't have to fear these gods. They are impotent. Gideon's father even notes, if Baal is God, he can contend for himself. He can avenge the desecration of his altar, but he doesn't. In all of these ways, God patiently and mercifully comforts Gideon's many fears. And you also should notice then the, con the, the clear comparison between this call of Gideon in, in chapter 6 with the call of Moses in Exodus Three, the author writes it in such a way that you should be thinking of Moses. For notice again, when, when God sends the prophet to answer Israel, he specifically mentions God's deliverance from Egypt, which he worked through Moses. And I believe one reason for this is because as we see with Gideon, with Gideon, this generation of Israelites is questioning whether the God who delivered from Egypt is real, whether he is still with them. Perhaps they were beginning to wonder if those stories that their parents had told them were, were true. Perhaps they wondered if, if God was just powerful in, in Egypt and he wasn't still powerful in Canaan. Maybe they were wondering if the God who delivered from Egypt was still with them and for them. Have you ever had those kinds of fears and doubts? Have there ever been moments when you've wondered whether the gospel or the God of the gospel are, are true and real? Have you ever wondered, is, is God still powerful to save like I, I read about in the Bible? Have you ever wondered, is God still with me and for me? Well, I'm again overwhelmed with how patiently and mercifully God deals with our doubts and our fears. For again, consider how God called Gideon to save Israel in light of how God called Moses to save Israel and Egypt. For God called Moses while he was hiding from his enemies in Midian. God called Gideon while he is hiding from his enemies, which happens to be the Midianites. So you see the connection with Midian in a wine press. Both of them were performing a kind of agricultural work at the time that the Lord appears. Both felt inadequate and argued that God shouldn't send them. Both were afraid. Both were given two signs, and one of those signs involved a staff. Isn't it odd that the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon with a staff? Well, a staff was pretty important, and as God is calling Moses. Both encountered the angel of the Lord, who clearly signified God's presence and spoke for God. Both experienced supernatural fire. I could keep going, but I, I think you get the point. It's as if in the very manner of calling Gideon, God is answering all of Israel's fearful doubts, saying, yeah, the stories of Egypt are true. I'm still real. I'm still God. I still save my people. What happened then can happen now. 
So when we speak of God's once for all salvation in Jesus, we don't mean God saved in the past, but he doesn't save anymore. He is forever saving his people. His salvation never runs out. It's a salvation in the past that works for all eternity. And so in the same way, God reminds us as he delivers us again and again and again that the stories we have heard are true. He is still God. He is still almighty. He is still with us and for us, and he can and will still save us. So Christian, do not cast angry accusations at God like rocks at glass. But do not be afraid to cast your anxieties, your fears, and your doubts upon God. God commands you, don't be afraid. But he doesn't actually condemn you for your fears. He judges faithlessness, not fearfulness. And one of, I think, the comforts of Judges 6 is that it shows us we can have faith and wrestle with fear at the same time. Just because you're afraid, it doesn't mean you've lost your faith. We ought not to be fearful, but being fearful is not the same as being faithless. For Gideon, like Moses, was full of fear, and yet Gideon, like Moses, is still listed in Hebrews 11 as an example of faith. Praise the Lord, then, that God's promise comes with merciful patience for those who believe, yet may still be plagued by fear and doubt. God can work with the fearful. He will not work with the faithless. Which, number three, we see once again that God's promise demands faithful obedience. This is the lesson that God is teaching when he commands Gideon to tear down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah pole, to build an altar to the Lord on top of it and offer a burnt sacrifice using the wood from the pagan pole. For God's presence requires forgiveness and cleansing from sin as well as faithful obedience. You cannot dwell with God when you are dwelling in unrepentant sin. You cannot dwell with God if you are serving other gods. So salvation in this sense is not unconditional. God's law and gospel both make this clear. The law demands have no other gods before God. The law requires the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins, meaning the de- pe- penalty of death must be paid. There is one God, and Israel needed to learn, it's not Baal. You and I need to likewise be reminded there is one God, and we worship him alone. God does not dwell with sin. God does not suffer any rivals. And when Jesus comes with the gospel, He doesn't get rid of the law. He comes to fulfill it. So for Gideon and for us, the message was clear. God is is saying, I can work with your physical and social limitations. I can work with physical weakness. I can work with limited gifts and status. I can work with fear. What I won't work with is faithful disobedience. 
This is the same message God communicated to Moses in that story when Zipporah has to save Moses' life by circumcising his son because God was again telling Moses, Moses, I know you've said you're not eloquent, you're afraid, that's not a problem. But if you're not walking in covenant faithfulness, that will be a problem. So, Christian, God's presence requires faith in the sacrifice that he has provided for your sin, which is the all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And his presence requires that you continue to walk with him by faith every day. Disobedience is walking away from the Lord. You can't be with God if you're walking away from him. Perhaps Israel thought, well, God saved us from Egypt. He clearly loves us, so it doesn't matter what we do in Canaan. But after bringing Israel out of Egypt, God gave them the law to teach them exactly how to live in Canaan. Now, that order is important. Grace precedes law. But it's not true to say that grace negates law. God's accusation to them was essentially, I saved you, but you are not obeying me. Once saved, always saved, doesn't mean I accepted Jesus once, now it doesn't matter what I do. To receive Jesus' salvation is to submit to his lordship. God's promise demands faithful obedience. Not because faithful obedience saves you, but because by faithful obedience you abide in your salvation. Fourth and finally, we see that God's promise comes with surpassing power. It may sound at first like God is mocking Gideon or being sarcastic when he greets Gideon saying, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Mighty man of valor. Isn't Gideon the guy who's trying to beat out wheat in a wine press? And the Lord says, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. And again, you think, what might of yours? What is God talking about? Well, I don't believe that God is trying to be funny or mean. I believe he's very serious. How could he be serious? Because God sees Gideon in light of the promise that he's giving Gideon. Because God's presence changes everything. He says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. If the Lord is with you, you are now mighty. Or go in this might of yours. Do not I send you. If God is the one sending Gideon, if God is for and with Gideon, then Gideon is mighty. Not because Gideon is mighty in himself, but because he has the mighty presence of God. It's like Paul saying, if God is for us, then who can stand against us? But that latter part depends fully upon that first part. God's presence changes everything because it comes with his surpassing power. As it says in Psalm 118, the Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? So God sees Gideon as God's promise will make Gideon. And what do we read a little bit later? But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. 
Christian, God's promise changes you. For God's promise of his presence means he's not only with you, he's now in you. You are clothed with his spirit in a mightier way than Gideon even was. For you are now clothed with Christ and you are indwelt by the spirit of Christ. And this ought to comfort you, I think, in two ways. First, you have the power of God within in you, which is a power that surpasses all other powers. When Gideon tore down Baal's altar unscathed, this proved God's superior power. Even the sign with the dew and the fleece was God demonstrating his superior power over Baal, because Baal was the storm god, but within his purview of power and dominion was dew. He was, in one sense, the god of dew. And God is showing, I can do whatever I want with Baal's dew. I just thought of that right now. That's actually really clever. I'm going to write that down. You have the surpassing power of God, which means you can say with the psalmist, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, I will not fear. The war arise against me, yet I will be confident. That's the comfort and confidence that comes from God's powerful presence. But it also comforts you because it reminds you that God sees you not as you are in yourself, but he looks upon you as you are clothed with himself. For the Christian, God sees you clothed with the righteousness of Christ and filled with the spirit of Christ. It is a great comfort and joy to know that God only sees us as we are in light of his promise. How do I know that this promise to Gideon really is God's promise to you? That this wasn't just for Gideon. How do I know that it is yours in an even more intimate and powerful way? I know this because the fulfillment of God's promise, the Lord is with you, came not when God sent an angel to Gideon. It came when God sent his son into the world. There was another angel who came to another man in a dream. That man was named Joseph, and he was betrothed to a woman named Mary. And the angel said, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. But Matthew explains all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is the fulfillment of God's promise. He is God's presence. This is possible because he also was the sacrifice, the burnt offering in a sense, that washed away our sin. On the cross, Jesus tore down all of our idolatrous altars and he became an altar and offering to God. 
He provided the faithful obedience that God demands. He clothed us with his Holy Spirit that we might never have to take a step in this world outside of God's presence. So Christian, all of you who have been united to Christ by faith, again, no matter what you are facing right now in your moment of life, the answer is not to cast angry accusations at your God as if he has forsaken you and his salvation. The answer is to cast your fears and your doubts upon him, knowing he will be mercifully patient with you and to follow him in faithful obedience to his word, trusting in the surpassing power of his Son and his Holy Spirit. For his Son has washed you of your sin, and his Spirit is more powerful than any enemy or adversity you will face. The promise of God's presence is the promise that you need right now, and it is the promise that God has freely and fully given you in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm sure there are those here this evening who are fearful, who are doubting, who maybe feel like you are far away. I pray that you would be merciful and patient with them. Wherever there is sin, I pray that you would reveal it to them, that they may turn from it. I pray that you would also Comfort them and remind them of all you have done for them in Jesus Christ. Remind them that you are still with them and for them, and you will continue to deliver them. Give us all this faith, and we thank you that you have given us this wonderful promise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.